I'm going to just take up where we left off in talking generally about suffering and sorrow or pain and suffering. And where we're going with this is to get to the place where we're also dealing with the subject of grief. But right now I want us to continue to look at this broader issue of why, why is there pain? Why, why does suffering exist in this world? And we don't know all the answers, but I would remind you that we do know some of the answers. Now, where we, one of the areas where we stopped, I wanted to mention that judgment uh, is sometimes very specific against sin. It's not only to be seen in a general way because we live in a fallen world, uh, and so therefore the whole creation is in discord, but also in God's particular judgments, for example, upon nations and upon individuals. However, it's important for us uh, to counter a misunderstanding, which is really as old as the book of Job, and that is uh, the idea that God's judgments upon nations and upon individuals in particular uh, are always a sign of some specific or special sinfulness and divine judgment. There's a temptation to think, well, something bad happened God, either we think it of ourselves, God must be judging me for something bad I did, punishing me, because we ask that question naturally, why me? But also, when we see others suffering, we might be tempted to think the same. Remember the disciples who also had this in mind when in the case of the blind man, they immediately asked Jesus if it was his sin or if it was the sin of his parents which had caused his blindness. The unnamed questioners of Luke 13 had the same idea when they asked Jesus about the Galileans who had been massacred by Pilate. In both cases, Jesus is quite emphatic that the particular sufferings do not prove the commission of particular sins. Of the blind man, he said this, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. So Jesus said there could be another alternative here. In fact, there's more than one other alternative, but Jesus in this case revealed that he intended to show God's glory in the midst of this man's uh, suffering. On the Galilean massacre, Jesus replied with a question in Luke 13. He said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so Jesus said, look, if people are going to get punished because they're sinners, then there's plenty, there's a lot to come. So don't get to thinking that somehow you're better than them. And that was his point is, well, if that's the way uh, pain and suffering come, then, of course, we're all in trouble. So we must not assume that because someone is suffering deeply that it is a sign of God's judgment upon them individually. It may be God's chastisement. It might be God's bringing glory to bear in their lives or the lives of others. Uh, There's any number of possibilities. And we shouldn't assume that about somebody who's suffering. And there's an opposite assumption that people make. And it's usually subtle. And usually people who make it don't say it because it sounds... Arrogant, but it's an attitude uh, that someone might assume that because someone is prospering, that this means that they are favored by God. 
God must like me. God must think I'm a bit better than others because look at how well I'm doing. And that would be a mistake as well. Yet having made this qualification, it must still be said that there are some specific judgments for specific sins. Gehazi's leprosy was divine retribution for his covetousness and his deceit in 2 Kings chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, whose sudden deaths are recorded in Acts chapter 5, are pretty solemn reminders of God's judgment on particular sins. You recall they lied to the Holy Spirit as they were speaking to Peter. The Bible says they lied to the Holy Spirit and one by one, each in sequence, dropped dead instantly. And so certainly that can happen. In the history of the Jews as a nation, there was a great crisis of the exile in the 6th century B.C. and an even greater catastrophe of Jerusalem's fall before the Roman soldiers in A.D. 70. I remember there's quite a controversy that came up, uh, at least in our circles, over 9-11 and complaints when pastors in some cases said this is God's judgment on America, that... um, Uh, the the complaint was you can't possibly draw that conclusion, and I would argue that uh, that's not true. Uh, The Bible is given for our instruction. We can certainly say in the general sense that certainly in a fallen world when judgments come, uh, and certainly in the Bible one of the ways judgments are painted is when your enemies rise up and get the best of you. That is clearly a picture of God's judgment upon someone. And so, at least in the general sense, certainly there were what we would call innocent people uh, in the Twin Towers, so it's not a particular judgment on those particular people in that sense. But as a nation, to the degree that our enemies triumphed and we were defeated in that sense, we can certainly draw a conclusion. The Lord, the Bible simply says, has not has calamity befallen a city, and I haven't done it. God didn't have anything to do with this. He was absent. And so certainly uh, we can draw some uh, general conclusions based upon what God has revealed in his word. And so uh, in national judgments, the innocent, though, also suffer with the guilty. That's kind of a covenantal principle. So if, if our country suffers and we're part of the country, then we're going to suffer as well. There is, however, one other aspect of judgment which is important to keep in view. And that is uh, the gracious purpose which God has in view when he sends a trial our way. Many persons who have persistently ignored the voice of conscience and the call of the gospel have been brought to their senses by pain and by sorrow. And so it has a way of getting our attention. We often say that at a funeral. Uh, As pastors, we realize this may be uh, the, the one occasion I might have to speak to someone about the gospel and to have their attention because they're busy the rest of the time and they're not thinking about eternal things. C.S. Lewis put it very succinctly when he said this, We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. 
Long ago, uh, Hosea couched his call to repentance in the same vein. In Hosea 6.1, says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. And so there are many whose tragic reaction to suffering is bitterness and hatred toward God. And I think we're all probably to some degree tempted to that. Um, and yet there are others who see God's mercy in the midst of his judgment and in the, in the response and respond to that in, uh, to that situation in that light with repentance if it's called for or thankfulness, uh, submission, uh, patience, long suffering. Uh, so how we respond to things is very critical. We all face Pain. We all face suffering. We all face any number of challenges. And in our lives, it's always about how we respond. Now, um, we see in the, in the Psalms, we see all through the Bible, we saw that Jesus wept at uh, Lazarus' funeral. Uh, we, we see that, that certainly grief and sorrow and sadness are an appropriate response to many situations of pain. But in the midst of that, we're called to see beyond the moment and to temper that, to be comforted with the word. And sometimes I don't want to be tempered. You know, it's like if you're upset and someone tells you to calm down. I don't want to calm down. I'll calm down later. Right now I want to be upset. And so don't tell me to calm down. And so oftentimes the words of comfort come at a time when we don't want to be comforted. We want to mourn. And we want to mourn deeply, and I think that's appropriate. That doesn't mean that those words of comfort won't comfort later. And I'm going to say a good bit more in the weeks to come about the power of words, what they can and what they cannot do. And so perspective on pain and suffering, and we're still asking some pretty broad questions here. And so the question is, in the broadest sense of the word, do pain and suffering have value? Do they mean anything? On the face of it, we might agree, for example, that some pain and some suffering contribute to our survival. If the stove is hot and I touch it and it makes me withdraw my hand, it might save me from a more serious injury, for example. So physical pain, in that sense, might contribute to my survival. But then again, uh, not all pain and suffering contribute to survival. In fact, I think uh, it, uh, for some, it, sometimes it just kills us. And who said survival is good anyway? Is survival good? I didn't say, do you like it? I said, is it good? Is it morally good? Well, we can only answer that question in, in the context of a Christian worldview. Because if there's no God, then there's no such thing as good and evil. They're just whatever is, is, including pain and suffering. So beyond this questionable benefit of survival, do pain and suffering have any substantial value or meaning? Elizabeth Elliot, missionary, wrote, Our vision is so limited we can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God is of, a, is of a different nature altogether. It does not hate tragedy. It never denies reality. It stands in the very teeth of suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. 
The cross was the proof of his love, that he gave that son, that he let him go to Calvary's cross, though legions of angels might have rescued him. He will not necessarily protect us, not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into that process. And so modern man, it turns out, lives in a very small world. At the very same time when his scientific horizons are expanding and he finds himself increasingly shut in then by a universe which yields him no hint of meaning. There is no God in the modern view. Nothing beyond the grave. Man, in fact, is but a speck of dust in the universe and a blip of time, a blip on the screen of time. And so his ultimate frontiers are the present state of human knowledge and his own obituary. That's man's entire, uh, that defines who he is. It's what we know right now and then the fact that I'm going to die. That's it. That's all the meaning there is. It's what I can know right this moment and the fact that I'm going to die. There's nothing beyond. Apart from further scientific advance, and even that is curtailed by the fact that it's within the universe where the absence of any spiritual realities means the absence of any ultimate meaning. So what? That we invented something that will do something a little bit faster. The next... You know, the iPhone 6, 7, 10, 14, so what? The barren landscape of the moon may excite the imagination, but it gives no answer to the deepest questions of life. The data furnished by the Hubble telescope may further the astronomer's knowledge of the universe, but they don't tell him anything about the issues of life and death and pain, and suffering. The universe doesn't care. To live in such a godless world is to live in hopelessness, to die in despair. And so suffering then in that world is utterly pointless, and the best you can do is to find some means perhaps to alleviate the distress. A good bottle of scotch, perhaps. But the Christian is persuaded that this world isn't that kind of a blind alley. We don't know everything. We cannot answer every question. Perhaps we can't even answer most questions. But we do know some things, and we can answer some of the important questions. And to tell you the truth, I'd rather be able to answer some of the important questions than to have all the trivia. The present physical universe isn't the extraordinary outcome of some random convergence of material forces. History isn't simply some turbulent stream of events, a chain of cause and effect. The world, you see, bears the stamp firmly laid on it of a purposeful creator. History 
bears clear evidence, not of the interplay of blind economic forces or of mere material factors, but of the providential direction of a personal God. Author Jerry Bridges noted in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and He brings or allows to come into our, and He brings or allows to come into our lives only that which is for His glory and for our good. And so the world, all around us bears the marks of the curse of God, but it also gives clear evidence of the grace of God. And so history exhibits all the cruelties and the vices of sinful men, but it's also vibrant with the redemptive purposes of God. So pain isn't some accidental artifact of life, to which we can only react with a shrug of despairing acquiescence. Even in pain, there's meaning to be found. In fact, I suggest, if we all think very much at all about whatever pain and suffering we've had, and I'm not saying it's true equally across the board for every event of pain and suffering, but almost all of us, if not all of us, can look and see that those pains and sufferings have taught us things and brought us along in ways that we would not have made that progress without them. Even in pain, there's meaning to be found, and the Christian aims not merely to survive the pain which suffering brings, but to learn the lessons that God is teaching. Our faith isn't a prescription for survival, but it is the divinely given key to unlock some of the mysteries of the pains and the griefs which inevitably come. So to put this in personal terms, and at an individual level, the Christian faces his own suffering with real challenging questions. So I'm not in any way suggesting that we're supposed to grin at pain and suffering and treat it lightly or act like it's not real or it's inconsequential. It's very consequential and it's very real. Question, though, we don't merely ask, how can I find strength to face the test? This is a question (coughs) that he certainly does ask, and the answer he discovers is in the grace of God. But it's not the final question. The ultimate question is, what is God teaching me through this time of suffering? How am I going to be a better person? How am I going to be more like Christ as a result of this? Or is this just nothing? And so related to that is a further practical consideration. How am I to apply the lessons that I learned to my own profit and to help others, and above all, to glorify God, which is man's chief end? One of the most obvious values in what might otherwise seem to be pointless pain is that it impels us to seek God in a far more earnest way. Read the Psalms and listen to the cry 
of the pain and at, and of the, and at times sheer anguish. What is the recurring response? It's to seek God with desperate earnestness. Psalm 42.1, As the deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. Likewise, it was when Paul was struggling with his thorn in the flesh that he was driven to plead with God for deliverance and then to discover a greater blessing in the promise, My grace is sufficient for you. You know, a child may run ahead of his parents in the sunlight, unaware that they're walking behind him, but in pitch dark, on a pitch dark night on a country road, they usually clutch their father's hand very tightly. So the Christian discovers that there's great danger in self-reliance and forgetfulness of God when everything is going well. But when when the clouds gather and the going is rough, He finds himself compelled with a greater urgency to go to his heavenly Father. Indeed, he can later praise God that the trouble came, that that the trouble that came, in fact, drove him into his Father's arms. And so, as pain drives us to seek the Lord, so it can be a means of revealing more of God's character to us. Let me let me just pause a minute and emphasize. When we face pain and suffering, we're faced with choices. How to respond. That's true of every trial. Are we going to become a better person? Are we going to face this and get to the other side with more faith, with more trust in our Father, better equipped, better prepared to live and serve, or is it going to undo us? And I've had a little of both. Maybe a lot of both. So I know it's not easy. But sometimes we also have both. Sometimes we've had those times and we have succumbed to it and realized that there was no benefit in that either. That that in itself was a lesson of how to do better next time. And so as pain drives us to seek the Lord again, it reveals more of God's character to us. And so therefore... This is really important, an accurate and deep knowledge of biblical theology and of the attributes and character of God are essential here. It matters what we think about God. Shallow and inaccurate views of God cannot comfort us. So when we hear these kind of trite statements about the man upstairs or God didn't have anything to do with that, that doesn't comfort me. I want to know that I'm crying out to a God who has everything to do with it, who sees me, who sees my pain, who understands what's going on and why and can bring meaning and purpose out of it. Good theology lays a good foundation, but it never stands alone. It's not enough to have, you know, it's not enough to be able to pass the theology test. We might have correct doctrinal notions about the meaning of grace. But the word pulsates with new life when we have felt the gracious hand of God laid on us in our sickness. We may have acknowledged the omnipotence of God in theory, but it is in our weakness that His strength 
is made perfect. And in our despair that his power is discovered to be all-sufficient. We may have had vague ideas about God's fatherhood, but when we have seen him by faith in the valley of tears and disappointment, then we know not only in our minds, but in our hearts. That as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And so the chastising may have been so severe that at times we felt that we could not endure much more. But then we found that it was a study course to teach us his love. Hebrews 12.6, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son whom he receives. And so pain is transformed from being a bitterly resented intrusion into an avenue of more intimate communion with God. So whatever kind of pain it is, grief, physical pain, other emotional pain, sadness, loss, any kind of sorrow, disappointment, uncertainty, fear, There's all kinds of pain, physical and psychological and spiritual, and sometimes all of those together. And so pain then is transformed from being a bitterly resented intrusion into an avenue of more intimate communion with God. My brethren, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Oh, but I don't want to. That doesn't make sense. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, it doesn't mean put a silly grin on your face or act like nothing's happening. Something's happening. It is a trial. But joy is not a silly grin. Joy is something deeper and more profound than that. Joy says, I see something in the midst of this. I trust God beyond this. As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. There's a joy in that. To know that this is not for naught. This is not for nothing. This is for something. Something bigger. Even if I don't know what it is yet, he promises me a peace that will pass understanding. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. To the sick person struggling with the lonely darkness of a sleepless night or with the bereaved in the bleak emptiness of loss, it is a strength to see in their pain the wider, broader purposes of God. God will be glorified in this. Think about this. The angels who sang before the world was created, sang at the creation and at the dawn of the new creation in Bethlehem, who rejoice, we're told, over every sinner that repents. They also praise God, no doubt, as they see the patience and the meekness and the deepening faith of the suffering Christian. And so the lessons that we learn in our suffering are not only profitable to us personally, they also equip us to help others. Your trials are your trials. But that enables you to sympathize and share with others 
And so Paul writes to the Corinthians of the comfort of God and of the, of the further aim and view in 2 Corinthians 1.4, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And I'm going to say more about this later, but your suffering and your pain is your suffering and your pain. But by the way, so are your joys, your joys and your happiness, your happiness. There is a real sense in which we live our whole lives alone and as individuals, and, and we can only experience what we experience. That's true only to a degree. But God also made us to live in community. He also made us to share. And so we can sympathize with one another. We can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That doesn't mean I have an identity. My broken leg and your broken leg don't feel, your broken leg doesn't hurt me at all. But if I've had a broken leg, I'm more apt to be able to sympathize with yours. Okay? And if I haven't had a broken leg, but I've had the flu, and I've had a migraine headache, I may not be able to feel your broken leg, but I know what pain feels like. I can sympathize with you, and you can sympathize with me. You can empathize. You can put yourself in the place of another. And that is helpful. It doesn't solve all the problems. It solves some of the problems. It is a help. It's not a cure. And so the lessons we learn do help others. To comfort others, we need to learn to be sensitive to their deepest needs. A superficial word of passing sympathy only mocks by its sheer formality. But what's needed is the sympathy which comes right alongside and feels and grieves with the sufferer. But much sensitivity may itself be learned through our own pain Peter had further lessons in view as he reflects on suffering in the furnace, which tests our faith. In 1 Peter 1.7, Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though tried by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so like the goldsmith who uses the refining fire to purge out the dross uh, and to expose the pure gold, God destroys our self-reliance by means of suffering. And at the same, and uses the very same instrument to exhibit the abiding worth of genuine faith. This faith is much more genuine than even the purest gold which will one day perish. But God not only tests the reality of faith, he also deepens it and he strengthens it. His aim is indeed that our faith will be so refined that at the coming of Christ, it will, be, it will receive glory and honor. We use the word glory, I think, too lightly. Glory is glorious. Glorious by comparison. I don't consider the sufferings of this life, to be worthy, to be compared, Paul said, to the glory that is to come. It's hard to imagine, as bad as some of the sufferings are, to think that the glory is going to so far exceed that, that, it, that, the, that the suffering is going to appear to be nothing by comparison. 
Now, this is the prospect which, for Peter, makes the most bitter trial joyful. God is perfecting the Christian faith. God will complete the process and will finally exhibit that faith which the world is so greatly despised in all of its essential worth. It is not uncommon for someone to say, I can't imagine what that house is going to look like when it's finished. The architect can. The artist perhaps can imagine what the the sculpture is going to look like. He can see it in his mind's eye. But when it's finished, everyone can see it. Another purpose which suffering serves is to, is, uh, to fulfill, or f- uh, serves to fulfill is to detach us from this world. So as Paul writes in Colossians 3, 2, we, to, to set our affections on the things above and not on the things of earth. When John urges us to love not the world, he does not refer to the created order. Uh, in which we see so much evidence of the Creator's power and wisdom that we're led to praise and worship Him, he refers rather to the world as a system, as a fallen system, if you will, a structure which has rejected God. His laws are flouted and the gospel is ignored. It's a world in which one of the great foes of the church Excuse me, the world is one of the great foes of the church and of the believer. The world, however, doesn't always appear in its raw hostility to us. The world can be pretty attractive, can it? The devil is an angel of light. He is too much of a master of strategy to utilize the resources of the world in only one way. And so there are times when the world presents itself to us in a very plausible way. It's material comforts, it's popular esteem, it's satisfying pleasures, it's agencies for realizing personal ambitions. These and many other factors are used to wean the Christian's affections away from God. So Paul warns about those who are rich in this world and who have become shipwrecked and strayed from the faith. And so incrementally, we find ourselves settling down in what Bunyan called Vanity Fair. And before we realize what's happening, our standards are being adjusted downwards and our appetite for spiritual things is being dulled. It's often true that at such times, only pain and loss can awaken us to the folly of living for things which are purely temporary. 2 Corinthians 4.18, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The things which are seen have an uh, incredibly potent influence upon us until they're shown up in the context of suffering to be so much of a passing show. How irrelevant so many of the apparently major concerns of life turn out to be in the face of sickness and death. I remember hearing a lady who was a Holocaust survivor speak a few years ago, and she just made the observation that most people, if you're not killed in an accident uh, in some way or a sudden death, most people will die alone in a room with a bed and a nightstand. So all the things we're hustling and bustling about our homes and cars and clothes and 
activities. It's not that they're not good things. God gave them to us and they are blessings. But in the end, they're temporary. And so, to the man of the world suffering a disastrous interruption of his enjoyment of the only world he either knows or desires, suffering is just a bad interruption. To the Christian, it can be a sudden shock to arouse him from his worldliness and to point him afresh to higher concerns. But if God aims by suffering to detach us from this world, it's because he has a greater goal for us in mind. Now again, I want to conclude by reminding all of us, the Bible doesn't give us all the answers. It gives us sufficient answers. It gives us sufficient answers, but we have to listen to them. We have to receive them. We can't shut them out. We have to say, okay, I'm going to pay attention. My father is giving me counsel and advice of how to face these things. And then when it happens, it's going to be hard, and we're going to be tempted to panic and to be anxious and all those things, and we're going to have to hear these things again. I have to hear them over and over and over. But this does give give us some big picture of how we're to look at, how we're to perceive, how we're to understand pain and suffering and to trust God, to know that he does what? He works all things together for good. All of them, all the painful things, all the sorrowful things. It all resolves in good to those who are called according to his purpose in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these revelations in your word. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for this hope and this certainty so that as we face pain and suffering in this world, we will not lose sight of that which is eternal, that which is everlasting, that which is true, that which is good and beautiful, to know that you and your power and your wisdom can take the most difficult, the ugliest, the most painful things and work them for our good and your glory. Help us to trust you and to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.